Last week, we began a, uh, a series called Overcoming Fear, Choosing Courage in the Age of Anxiety. Poets and uh, sociologists have called our age the age of anxiety, and everyone who lives in this time goes, yeah, that's, that's about right. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, the hope of this series is to help us all move forward um, and beyond our fears that we all carry, whether collectively coming out of a global pandemic or individually keeping us from following God in faith. And today I'm going to be reading from Psalm 56, and I'll read it, um, and we'll be silent for a few seconds to allow the, the Spirit to align our hearts to the path that He desires that we take today. Psalm 56, if you have a Bible, you could turn there, I'll read it. For the director of music, to the tune of A Dove on Distant Oaks, of David, a miktam, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this, I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I am not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's take a few moments of silence and let this sink in and ask the Spirit to to search us. Lord, Spirit, would you search us and know us? Would you bring to our minds the things that kind of lay under the surface of our life, those deep-seated anxieties and even fears that, unbeknownst to us, wreak havoc on our lives? Would you bring them to the, to the front of our mind and deal with him today by the power of your word, and by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. In February of this year, uh, Ashley and I, my wife and I, lost a baby. Um, it's a story that is more common than you would want to believe among couples trying to have a child, or another child in our case. The knowledge of the loss itself was really devastating. Uh, but the actuality of the loss had a, had a trauma all its own. Ash had to go to the ER late one night due to um, excessive bleeding, and I had to stay home with our daughter, Juniper, uh, as no one was allowed in the ER with her due to COVID. And someone from our community actually picked Ashley up and took her that night. I was at home. My sister and my niece came over for support. And there I was at home with all of my thoughts and fears rushing through my mind of the worst thing happening and me being left as a single dad, of having to tell Junie what happened. 
And then, swearing to myself over and over again that night that I'll never let anything like this happen ever again. That I'll situate my life so that something like this would never possibly happen to us. And when the ordeal was all over, when Ash was in a stable place of healing, we finally started talking about what happened. Um, all our fears. Ashley shared her fears. I shared mine. And then I told Ashley that I never want to try to have kids again. Never. And she was shocked. And I was shocked that she was shocked. I was like, you went to the ER. You're now 40. I'm like 100. I can't do this anymore. This works in the Old Testament. We don't live in the Old Testament anymore. And then I told her that I felt like we won the lottery, that we hit the jackpot with our first daughter, Juniper that I'm not about to walk back into the casino and start betting again. We beat the house, let's take the money and run, I said. And I know if you're like a therapist right now, you're like, it's interesting that you use a betting metaphor <laughs> to explain um, what's going on in your life. And it's very interesting, I will, I will give you that, it is very interesting. And so her and I argued. We had to bring uh, in uh, Pastor Kevin and Bethany to help us hear one another. They told us to give it time, that we're both grieving, that we should stop trying to live into the future and just heal right now and give it time. Sage counsel, wise counsel. In my journals during that time, I kept writing that I was afraid, that I was afraid of losing it all. I was afraid of the risk of trying to have another kid. I was afraid of another loss or a greater loss. I wrote that I wonder what kind of person I'll become because of this loss. See, I know enough about life to know that every significant thing that happens to us in our lives will shape us as humans and turn us into who we are becoming, every major thing that happens in our life. And I was wondering that if I would become the kind of person who is more thankful and submitted to God because of what happened, or if I would become the kind of person who is more fearful because of what happened. And at that point, I was trending towards becoming way more fearful. Psalm 56 is a psalm about fear. Fear from possible worst-case scenarios. The fear of death, the fear of ruin, the fear of what people might do to us or might say about us, all leading to a type of internal misery that has the psalmist, David in this case, on the brink of paranoia, maybe even a mental breakdown according to the background of this psalm, which is found in 1 Samuel 21, where he literally either, we, commentators are divided, whether he act like he was insane or he went insane. But through the movement of the psalm, David, through all of the paranoia, all of the fear, even almost the mental breakdown, finds a way to turn from, from fear to faith, from the chaos raging in his mind and heart and body to a trust in God that frees him from certain outcomes and brings him from the darkness of fear to, as the psalm ends, the light of life. Now, I will not pretend at all that this journey is an easy one, nor will I pretend that this sermon will solve all of your fear problems. But there's a lot to learn from this psalm about our fears and how they might be able to turn us toward a faith and trust in God as malleable human beings who are faced with a decision every single day. And the decision is this. Am I becoming someone who, is, who more fully trusts in God, or am I becoming someone who is overcome by my fears? 
This is a decision that with every life decision or every fear that we have is available to us. Am I becoming the kind of person who more fully trusts in God or am I becoming the kind of person who's overran and overcome by my fears? This is what I want to show you today from the psalm. The first thing that we learn from the psalm about fear is this. First thing, number one, to be human is to be afraid. Write that down. Take that in, okay? To be human is to be afraid. Experts argue that our very first and most primal emotion is fear. The very first emotion that we feel being born into this world is fear. It is fear that made us cry when we came out of our mother's warm womb into the cold, bright delivery room. It is fear that has us clinging to our parents when they tried to put us in a stranger's arms when we were a few weeks old and they were passing us around. Which means fear isn't all bad. Some fear is innate to our humanity and is good for our flourishing. In the simplest form, fear is an instinctive warning cry that danger is nearby and that we had better do something about it. Fear tells us, it's instinctive, that danger is nearby and we have to do something about it. As the famous life coach Tony Robbins says, fear actually stands for F everything and run. That's what fear actually stands for. Fear happens when there's an, there's an identifiable source of danger or threat and the limbic system in our brain is able to detect that danger within a tenth of a second of initial perception. Your body does this way before your conscious decision-making has a chance to kick in. And your, and your fear hormones, your fear, like part of that limbic, limbic system in your brain tells your body to do something about the clear and present danger. There's a positive and constructive emotion because fear saves your life when you're in danger. It's supposed to. When fear strikes you, adrenaline gets flooded into your body. It gets pumped into your muscles and bloodstream. Blood drains from your skin's surface, which is why people look pale when they get really afraid. And it gets redirected to your large muscles, making you super strong, which is why moms can lift cars, if you've seen those, those like videos on, on the internet. Your heart pounds to enable your body to go into overdrive. Your eyes widen and your pupils expand to take in the maximum amount of information. You literally turn into a superhuman when you're afraid. See, the fear system in the body can be kind of amazing, and it's hardwired into us. To be afraid is to be human. And you don't really mature beyond being afraid. Jesus ended his life afraid, according to the commentators sweating blood in the garden from the distress of the coming cross. Fear is a part of life. Now, you may be in here or maybe listening and thinking, I have no fears. I've overcome all of my fears. That's not true. You're just not in touch with reality anymore. <laughs> it used to be said that adults fell into one of two categories, neurotic or psychotic. Neurotic is you're in touch with reality and afraid, and psychotic is you're out of touch with reality and you're afraid. And we have a lot more buckets now to fill. So David says this in verse 3. When I am afraid. When. He recognizes and acknowledges his fear. Now, if you know anything about David's story, you might think he doesn't have much reason to be afraid. He killed a bear with his bare hands once. He killed Goliath, the giant, with a sling. And he's a skilled military genius. He has no reason to be afraid. But... To be afraid is to be human. So he says, when I am afraid. 
Please do not take this sermon series as an attempt to teach you to remove all fear from your life. Know that, first of all, that's not Christian, and it's not human. You will experience fear in your bodies your entire life. The question is, what do you do with your fear? That's what matters. What do you do with your fear? So what did David do with his fear? This is the question. What do you do when you're afraid? This brings us to the next thing we learned from the psalm about fear. When you are afraid, locate, listen, and learn from your fears. When we are afraid, we must learn to locate, listen, and learn from our fears. Fears have a way of overwhelming us and then paralyzing us with a vague sense of anxiety where we don't know where the fear is even coming from anymore. This is why it's important to slow down when we're afraid or when we start feeling anxious. Locate your fears and find where they're coming from. Notice that David is acknowledging his fear at the same time that he's locating his fear. The fear was coming from a very common source of human fears, people. People make us afraid. In this case, people were trying to destroy him. Look at verse 1 and 2. People were trying to destroy him physically. They were relentless in their pursuit of him to bring him down. They were literally hunting him down. So he's afraid of people and what they're going to do to his physical life. But look at verses 5 and 6. He's afraid that they're going to destroy his character. They were twisting his words and scheming to ruin his reputation. Meaning, if they can't kill him dead, they will try to kill him while he still lives by destroying his name. The fear of people is a very common fear. Fear of what people will do to us and hurt us. The fear that people won't be there for us. The fear that people will twist what we say and our attentions to do us harm. The fear what people think. The fear of not being accepted or loved or approved of by others. We have these fears all the time. They're running in the background when we're interacting with people. When we show up to church, when we go to work, they're always happening. And when we stop to locate our fears, that's only when we can actually start to listen to them. And other big ones, like the fear of death or the fear of not having enough money or the fear of failure. These, all of these things are like the major fears that we deal with. When we stop and we can locate our fear, oh, this is coming from a fear of people. Or this is coming from a fear of death. This is coming from a fear of not having enough or being provided for. Oh, this is coming from a fear of failure. When we can locate them, then we can start listening to our fears. And when we listen to our fears, what most of our fears are saying to us is this, life is dangerous. That's what most of our fears tell us. Life is dangerous. When Ashley was in the ER, what my fears were really telling me was that life is dangerous and that our world is uncertain and we are more vulnerable than we want to believe. And when we dig a little deeper into what these fears are saying to us, one of the most profound truths of all begin to emerge. When we actually do the work and we're digging at our fears like, oh my gosh, this world's dangerous. And when we start digging and digging and digging, we're going to ultimately land on. And what we're going to ultimately learn is this, that I am ultimately not in control. I'm not actually in control. This is probably the biggest lesson we learn from our fears. I'm not in control of people. I'm not in control of drunk drivers. I'm not in control of the stock market. 
I'm not in control of an angry mob on social media. I'm not in control of my boss selling the company. I'm not in control of the price of meat. I'm not in control of people leaving. I'm not in control of the next global pandemic. I'm not in control of babies in wombs. I am not in control of the future. This is really hard to tell people in, in Silicon Valley and San Francisco because we live here and we think we are the future. We are in control of the future. We make the future. We, our technology has advanced the future. All that technology does is it gives us new things to be afraid of. That's all that technology really does. We're still as fearful, if not more fearful, than a thousand years ago. We are just way more advanced in our fears. Now, this is really, really important. Because unless you do this work, you'll never get underneath that anxiety that most of us live with all the time. This is important, maybe more important than it might seem. See, just to be able to name something, no matter how absurd or unfair or no matter how, no matter how powerless we are to change it, just by naming something, it helps to somehow be free of it in a way. To name something correctly is to kind of free ourselves from its dominance, which is why in Monsters, Inc., when my daughter watches Monsters, Inc., I'm like, oh, that's Mike or that's Soli, and that it names something, names a monster. It's not just a monster, it has a name. Just naming it takes away some of its scariness, and she all of a sudden thinks it's a furry cute thing. <laughs> just, and this is, I mean, that's a silly example because all my examples are Pixar right now, so just, <laughs> I have a lot more coming, believe me. But just naming something helps the, the power of it go away. Ronald Rollheiser says, this is why totalitarian regimes fear artists, writers, religious critics, journalists, and prophets, is because they name things. That's ultimately the function of prophecy. Prophets don't foretell the future as much as they properly name the present. And when you name things, the things that were so scary lose some of their power. Richard Rohr is fond of saying, not everything can be fixed or cured, but it should be properly named. James Hillman, the late famous psychologist, adds that a symptom suffers most when it doesn't know where it belongs. Anyone who's ever Googled symptoms on the internet knows exactly what this feels like. Where does this belong? Oh my gosh, it's the worst. What they're all saying is that when our fears go unnamed, they actually turn into a low-level anxiety that sabotages us and wreaks havoc on our lives. See, most of our anxiety comes from not naming our fears. Things like worry and anxiety tend to be vague and fill our minds and bodies with weakness and fragility. When we don't properly name our fears, they can turn into a kind of anxiety that taints everything in our lives. Worry and anxiety turn us into people who live so fearful of something we can't name in the future that everything in the present is met with resistance, suspicion, or criticism. We must locate and name our fears. What are you afraid of? This is the, this is the question of Jesus from last week. What are you afraid of? Locate and name your fears, and then listen to what they're saying to you, and then learn what these fears say about you and what these fears say about God. Because when we get there, and it's impossible, and it's not impossible, this is very possible. When we get to the place where we're naming our fears, and by the way, naming your fears is a possible thing, either in prayer, or with a mentor, or with a counselor, or with a therapist, or for someone like me, all of the above, 
When we finally get there, when we can name our fears, when we reach the bottom of our fears, only then can God's word actually do something to us. And this is, this is, this is really important. What do I mean by that? What do I mean that God's word can actually do something to us? I'm not a doctor, but before you treat almost anything properly, there needs to be a diagnosis. A diagnosis follows the symptoms to the problem. In the same way, when we have to actually, we must get down to our root fears, it's only then can we, we can actually begin to apply the balm of God's word. When, when we think we're having this like low-level anxiety and we don't really can name it and we try to take in God's word, it doesn't really apply to the root. It's only to when we get down to the root, to the very core of our fears, that God's word fits aptly right there and is a healing balm right there. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, in March, like after... Uh, the loss, and right before we started talking about the building and the possibility of the church building and all the anxiety that, that brings up, all the what-ifs that that brings up, um, I, I started, I, I, I got to a place where I was, I was journaling, I called it a conversation with myself with God. And I started journaling like, like me, I was imagining me 20 years from now, talking to myself now, but my 20-year self had God in it. So God was kind of speaking through me 20 years from now. That was kind of, it's kind of a weird thing, but it was really helpful for me. And so I, so I asked my 20, my 60-year-old self was saying to my 40-year-old self, uh, what are you afraid of? And so as I was writing this, I, I basically asked myself, why are you so tired and why are you so afraid? And so I started answering these questions and I eventually answered this. I said, I think I'm afraid because I feel alone. And I don't want to feel alone. And this is how I responded to that, or I think God responded to me, through me, to myself. You're not alone. If you really knew how much that statement is true, you wouldn't fear anything ever again. It was only when I got to that very root. Um, what is it? What's the root? Um, I feel alone, and I'm afraid that I'll be alone. And only then can God's word, you're not alone. And if you really knew how much this is true, you wouldn't fear anything again. And then I said this, I said, well, what, what, if, what if my heart gives way? What if I, I keep moving forward with all the things that are going on in the life of the church and life of my family and all the risks that, that everything involves, the risk of trying to have another child, the risk of getting into a building? What if all these things moving forward and I used all of my energy to get there and I, I, I finally get there and I have no more strength to carry on? So my, my fear was the future that I would get to the future I would have no more strength. I would, have, I would have used all of it in all of this like risk assessment, all of this like let's move forward or whatever it is with my family or with the church. And I would get to the place where we're finally moving forward and I would have no energy and no strength when I got to this other side. It was only when I located my fear was God able to speak right to that fear and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Amen. The thing I wrote down was there will be what you need when you get there. And if indeed you find yourself weak and tired and without strength when you get there, God has a way of working better through that anyway. And if you find new strength, it's grace. So really it's grace upon grace. It was, wasn't until I actually, because I, I, li I lived a, a couple months with this, like, this anxiety that was around the surface that was actually wreaking havoc on all my decisions, on all the things that I was all, it was clouding my vision, it was ruining my relationship with my wife. Like it was all of that. It wasn't until I finally was able and took while, a while to get down to the base level of my fears. I am afraid of being alone 
And I'm afraid of not having the strength to carry on with what the things that God has placed in front of me. And to those things, God's work was, word was like a balm to me. If I just applied just like I'm anxious and God's like, don't be anxious. I'm like, oh, okay, that's not helpful. <laughs> Has anyone not been anxious by, by, by someone saying, don't be anxious? You're like, I'm so anxious. Don't be anxious. What? Oh, I, okay, great. I'm not anxious. Never worked. Zero times. Zero times it's worked. It's not until we get under our anxiety, get under our fears to the root fear. That's when the balm of God's work can actually do its healing. And this was me with God, naming my fears and allowing the truth of God's word to really be applied to my fears at the time. Because when it comes down to it, listen, the only real alternative to fear is trust. The only real alternative to fear is trust. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. There will be a lot of very responsible things to do on the way to trust. We can try to control the things within our control. The fear experts will point this out to us. We can get advice from leading experts. We can do a fear inventory, which is all very sound wisdom. That's all very good. But when it's all said and done with all the information in front of you, what it all boils down to is this. Will you trust? Verse 3, when I, am when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise in God I trust, I am not afraid. Wait, he went from I'm afraid to I'm not afraid. What's in the middle there? Trust. That was the journey that he was on. You see that journey? I'm afraid, and when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm not afraid. That was the journey. He went from afraid to not afraid through, through trust. And then he says this, what can mere mortals do to me? What's ironic about this passage is that we're supposed to read that last sentence like a boast. Like, what can people really do to me? What can they do? But if you keep reading, David names a lot of things people can do to him, <laughs> which is what I love about the Psalms. Like, what can men do to me? Well, for one, they can ruin my reputation. He literally does that in the next sentence. They can sabotage my leadership. They can conspire to wreck my life. Or they can boil me in hot oil. That, he didn't say that, but I'm sure he thought that. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that people can do to us. If you've ever done the exercise where you imagine the worst thing, have you, did you, do you ever stop to realize how wonderful your imagination is? You're like, I have a great imagination. Like when they say, do the fear and terror, imagine the worst thing happening. I'm like, I can imagine a lot of, I have a great, I should be in, like, in movies, writing movies. I have a great imagination of all the bad things that can happen to me. There's a lot that can go wrong with life. There's a lot that can go wrong with your life. But the reason why the Bible says fear not, and fear not is the most repeated command in the Bible, and it is, by the way. We've talked about that since Easter. Fear not is the most repeated command in the Bible. The reason why fear not is the most repeated command in the Bible is because fear threatens to keep us from trusting and obeying God. Fear threatens to keep us from trusting God, from obeying God. It's fear that keeps us stuck. Fear of people, fear of being provided for, fear of failure, fear of death. These are the root fears that disrupts faith and becomes the biggest obstacle in trusting God. Al said this very profound thing last week. A lot of profound things, but this one really stuck out. Al said last week, and it's true not just of him, but of all of us. He said that his spiritual directed pointed out to him that when he imagines his future, 
he always imagines it without God in the picture. I remember he told me that a few years ago. I'm like, gosh, you do that, Al. You do that a lot. Wait, I do that too. Oh my gosh. Actually, Ashley does that the most. And no, no, actually, no, Tark. Oh, everyone I know does. Everyone I know imagines the future and imagine God's not there. We all do that. Our fears are funny. Our first, our fears are false prophets. You know that, right? They try to tell the future and are very, 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 very seldom right. Our fears are false prophets. Like, this is what's going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. We don't, like, do what we should do, like Old Testament, the false prophets. Kill them. Kill our fears. Like, fear, you've led me wrong too many times. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. We don't do that. We find a way of, of like, oh, well, it's kind of right. He was, my fears were kind of right and kind of off this time, but whatever. Fears first are false prophets. And if, and if uh, uh, you know, our false prophets of fear what they never do is they never really account for God being in the future with us. They never say, this bad thing's going to happen, but God's going to be with you. Our, our fears don't do that. See, most times when God tells us not to fear, what else is accompanied with that? Do you, do you remember? Fear not for I am what? With you. Fear, God says, fear not for I am with you. Do you do, that's not a coincidence. The reason why we fear the future because we can't imagine God in the future. See, for if some reason your false prophecy of fear does come true, what I bet you did not account for was the fact that God will be with you there too. God being with you doesn't mean that everything will work out like you want it to. It means when it doesn't work out like you want it to, you are not alone. It means when it doesn't work out like you want it to, God works all things together for good. It means when it doesn't work out like you want it to, God's grace is sufficient for you. Whenever you talk with people, whenever I talk with people who have lived through some of the worst things, they always talk about the sufficiency. They might not say these words, but what they, what they mean is that they were carried by something, by the prayers of other people, by the sufficiency of God's grace, by something that lifted and carried them onward. See, when, and, but when we imagine a fate like that happening to us, we'd never account for God being with us to journeying with us through it. Now, let's say the worst thing is happening to you right now. And I, and I would imagine uh, in a church our size for a few people, the worst thing is happening to you right now. Let's say you're like David. You're stuck in a cave. The enemies have closed in. There's no way out. I've been there in my life a few times, actually, where the worst thing that I actually imagined did come true. The thing I dreaded most of all happened. What do you do? Verse 8, record my misery, list my tears on your scroll, are they not in your record? What this verse tells us is that sometimes the worst does happen. We're never promised the perfect life we imagined. Never. But what David does is ask God to record and remember his misery, to take his tears and put them in a bottle. Some of your translations, the original translation reads better, put my tears in your bottle, not list my tears on your scroll. There's a, like an, an idiom there. Put my tears in your bottle. What's going on here? God is the one who remembers and treasures our pain so that we can give it to him and move beyond that pain. Meaning, 
we don't have to hold on to it forever. God does. He will literally hold our pain. Record it down. Keep our tears so that we don't have to. You can move on. I will hold this pain for you. I'll actually absorb it. This is what the cross says. I'll take your pain. Not only that, all your tears, I'll catch them in my bottle and I'll save them. You don't have to hold on to that anymore. I'll hold it. You can move forward. I would be lying to you if I told you that your fears will never happen. In fact, many of them might happen. But the most beautiful part of the psalm, maybe the most powerful part of the psalm, comes from the superscript at the heading of the psalm. It says this, how the psalm starts. To the director of music, to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. This is so beautiful. Why is that there? The psalmists want you to be able to sing the song too. They assume that you know the tune. It's like to the tune of whatever song is like the most popular song in the world. I don't even know. I don't listen to the radio anymore, if that's a thing anymore. But whatever the most popular song is, to the tune of that song that everyone knows, sing this song. What the psalmist wants is that he wants you and I to be able to sing this psalm too. This is a universal psalm. This is a universal song, one that we all know the tune to. We all know the tune to despair and fear and misery. And ultimately, the hope is that this song will give you words to put your trust in God whose word is sufficient and his presence is enough. This is what this psalm is trying to do. To the director of music, sing this song, but sing it to that tune everyone knows. That tune that everyone knows, it's just like the tuning fork of the human soul. We all know this song. We all know misery and fear and pain and all of that, but teach them this song about putting their trust in God. The hope is that we can sing this song too. Now, I want us to imagine as we end with all of our fears, imagine getting to the root of them. If you live with chronic anxiety, I would, I would encourage you to start here. It might end up therapy. It might end up psychology. It might, a psychologist, it might end beyond that. But start here. Try to imagine, not the worst thing that happened, try to imagine the root cause of your fear. Where's that fear coming from? It might come in a journal entry. You might spend time meditating on this week. Get down to it. I fear alone. I fear being alone. What might, look, what might it look like to acknowledge your fears before God and turn your despair over to him, to turn your tears over to God and choose in a, in a messy way because tears and despair, that's messy. This is not clean. This is a pretty messy thing. To turn your fears and your, and your despair and your tears over to God and choose the way of trust. What might that look like? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, search us and know us right now, God. Wherever you're at, if you can open up your hands to God just in a, a posture of just being open, like this like vulnerable, palms out, hands open, your heart exposed to God. Lord, search us and know us right now.
I believe that you can free a whole generation from the deep-seated anxiety that we all collectively live in. That we can deal with our fears and trust in you, God, and rise up as leaders in this generation that place their hope in God and are not disillusioned by the fact that things will be hard. They will be hard. Or disillusioned by the fact that some fears will come true and they will, and yet you are with us. And you will be with us. And you'll lead us in the way everlasting. And we will go through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you, Lord, that you hold our tears in your bottle, that you record all of our misery, that you literally have taken it upon yourself in the cross and on the cross, that all of our misery, all of our pain, all of our fears are received in you there. I pray for those that are stuck right now in fear. They're literally paralyzed in fear. The fear of moving forward with someone that they love, the fear of moving forward to this next thing that you're calling them into, the fear of breaking something off that they know they should not carry anymore. And it's fear that keeps them stuck every single day doing the same thing over and over and living with this fog of anxiety and worry. I pray that you would break that off in Jesus' name. I pray that they would start to begin to see that they can trust in you. They can name their fears and be delivered. Awaken us, Lord. Cause us to see. Let the scales fall from our eyes. Allow us to hope again in what's possible. Allow us to hope. Fear is a parasite on hope. There is no fear without hope. So let us hope again, God. Let not fear take over everything. Let us hope again in a future and a possibility. Do it in Jesus' name.